0: Thanks everybody. I feel like I'm glowing in the the light of the Lord here, or it could just be the sun going down over there. But um, I actually can't see you at the moment, so if you could just titter every now and again, just to reassure me you're there. We um, are or have been going through uh, James, the book of James. And if you've got a Bible, um, that would be great. Uh, if you haven't, there are loads at the back there. Um, we're going to do. The last bit of James 5, which I'll read to you. I'm going to start at verse 13. This is a book, James, um, that's one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. It's actually written mostly. Am I alright, John? I'm not really. That's just me, don't worry. Is that going to be any better? Is it? Okay, good. This is. um, A a letter written by uh, James, the brother of Jesus, the head of the Jerusalem church, probably before most of the Gospels are written. This is so early in church life. Um, Written to uh, Jewish Christians scattered around the place. And James, uh, if you've been following us, you'll know he's focused a lot on ethics and behavior. What you do... Not so much the intricacies of what you believe. Not that he would regard that as irrelevant or unimportant, but you, you, you know the, the idea that faith without works is dead. So James wants to talk to us about what living faith looks like when it's lived in the community of God. What does it actually look like? Um, faith is not an invisible thing that's held up here. It's something that finds its way. To the ends of our fingers and the ends of our toes. So um, and we've heard about um, controlling the tongue, um, living by faith, um, all various things, how to um, submit yourself to God, the idea of wisdom, the need for wisdom in, in church life and so on. We get to the end of the book now, end of the letter. And there is this um, section here which talks about how the church family behaves, how it what it looks like when it's in intimate relationship with itself, which I'll explain in a bit. So let's read these few verses together, chapter 5, and I'm going to start at verse 13. James writes, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him. And anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And that for James is what the church living as family looks like. That's a picture of his idea of a church family functioning healthily. It's a reminder to us that we live very much uh, as individuals a lot of the time. We live in a very individualistic age, or we have done up to now. And it's a profound problem hanging over us how to um, unravel that influence. Because it leads us mostly to try and sort out our own problems for ourselves most of the time, doesn't it? Most of us would say that self-sufficiency, self-reliance is the spirit of the age, probably has been for a long time certainly since the 80s where it was like a mantra and often because those things are not sorted out in our lives and we're all the same, we will have them we hide those things and we keep them under wraps and there are times when other people who are not fooled by that, know us better than we know ourselves. You know, we, we sort of get into a place of lack of self-awareness because um, we're not really dealing with the issues that we've got. We have um, a society that claims to look after us, but one which doesn't want to know us. So if you, um, if you are in need, you'll go to a, an anonymous process that may give you some unemployment benefit or some health care, It doesn't really know you, it will just look after your physical needs. And the the greatest risk we take is filling out a form with a name and a national insurance number or some equivalent to that. And that's about as much self-disclosure as we're ever asked to give. And for the most part we spend a lot of time cultivating an individual image of ourselves for the deception of others and the deception of ourselves, keeping up and in with them instead of living a life of risk and openness and transparency. So we don't really live as family in the way that we could. We don't unlock the potential of the church as a family, because for, for much of the time we live as a collection of individuals who just meet together, which is which is quite a different thing. The Protestant faith possibly has a little blind spot on this, because um, through the healthy stress of personal faith and a personal relationship with God which is a good thing we've lost sight of what the Catholic faith was rather good at which was the community of faith living together, sharing together, that kind of thing Um, and it maybe it's something that God is calling us back to back to being collective again back to being community and in relationship with each other but in a much more powerful way than maybe we would feel comfortable with because at the heart of this problem is, is fear, isn't it? We, we fear that other people will judge us if we're really transparent and honest about our problems. We feel that they will reject us or that we, we will be sidelined and someone else will be chosen because we've admitted we've got a problem. And fear keeps us living with issues instead of dealing with them and not really living as family When the apostles write about the community of faith, about church, they write about something which is radically different to that. Now, admittedly, they're writing into a different culture, but I think that's irrelevant. I think we still need to look at what they were trying to convey as um, Christ's heart for the church. And and they used a Greek word called "konoinia." It begins with a K, K K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, Konoinia, which is the community of believers that is in the world, loves the people of the world, but does not love the world and its systems itself. In other words, it's distinctive. But enters into communion with each other by an intimate participation. So it's a place where people really know each other, where people are open to each other, and they're open to both help and correction from each other. And that's Paul's, John's, Peter's, And James's image of a church as family. Not a collection of people that meet once a a month or once a week to share in a common cause. The church is not a collection of people with a common cause. It's an intimate body of interconnected parts of which you are a member. The word is used... um, Sometimes in connection with the breaking of bread, the actual communion, um, and the sharing of stuff together. It's a lifestyle that the Greeks and the Romans knew nothing about. Kononia is something utterly different to the spirit of the age in which James was writing. This is radical discipleship reflected... Um, reflecting the life and character of Jesus which James is very prone to do you can see Jesus' words reflected in a lot of words that that James writes particularly the sermon on the mountain and on the plain and you can see that um, that he's, he's reflecting what he knew of his brother's own words it's much more also than being just outward focused I don't mean to demean that term, it's an important one But it's not just um, an image of uh, positive Christian PR aimed at outsiders. This is something contagious and subconscious and genuine that people catch. This is Jesus being sneezed out, you know, being spread like a virus that people love to get, you know, something that's innate and um, uh, sort of caught on the wind what James is asserting here and in the whole of his letter is that we as Christians living together entering into this thing called kinoinia, we don't think our way into a new way of living and that's what we spend most of our time doing trying to think our way into new ways of living we live our way into new ways of thinking and that's really the message of James don't try and think your way into being different be different and see how it affects your thinking And that was what I heard every speaker say at New Wine. Go and do this, and then see what you think. Go and share this with people who don't have it, and then see what you think. How does this, doing this, change the way you think about theology and God and everything? And this was the great evangelistic secret of the church for the first 300 years, until it became establishment, and then it got rather spoiled. But the church before Constantine knew how to do this. Carry a very, very light burden of theology because no one had written it. It was a golden age. You could get a theology degree in about 10 minutes. It was about doing, it was about being, and about sharing, and about being open and, and living this distinctive form of lifestyle, which not everybody liked. Christians were persecuted often because people just found them irritating because they loved each other it doesn't always get a great reaction this because light exposes darkness and the darkness doesn't like it this is, um, I've been studying John a lot recently and it's all through his writings about how the, the darkness rejects the light but it is the way we're called to do the way we're called to do church church as family it's a lot more than just being nice to each other though We see in this this family picture something much more powerful. This is intimate family communication, participation and revelation. Before we go through the actual verses, I just want to challenge you because um, this is easy to give nodding assent to. This is very easy to say, oh yes, that's wonderful, I'm going to go and do that. But if you'll read what James writes in that little section... And you're the person in need. Or you're the person whose sins need to be forgiven. Or you're the person who needs correcting because you've strayed into error. This is a really risky way to live. This is actually quite penetrating and uncomfortable. And your um, 20th and 21st century English values get quite challenged. Because you suddenly realize that maybe you don't have a choice about everything. You know, the God of choice that we worship. Maybe your own personal barstool philosophy is not right. Maybe there is some truth out there. Maybe you are in error. Maybe your private life is not so private. Maybe the Christian community has a call and a, and a right to kind of interfere. It's a very favourite English word, isn't it? And there's great risk in that. You know, it regards, or, or requires rather, uh, us to give each other permission you know if I'm going to sort kind of correct Harry and, and sort of wake him up yeah. um, he's got to give me permission to do it otherwise he's going to fold his arms and resist me isn't he and I'm not going to get anywhere um, you know or, or if, um, if I, uh, you know if, if Pete's sick or unwell and, and I think we're going to, we're going to gather the elders around and anoint him with oil and pray for him he may not want us to do that. You know, it's a pride thing that stops people admitting even that they have the need. So it says permission required and vulnerability involved and, and an embracing of change. I mean, you're not going to do this unless you want to change. If you're happy just being the way you are, you're not going to give me permission to weigh in and sort your life out as, as you would see it. So on the other half of the equation, the church needs also to know what biblical love is all about and the the Holy Spirit gift and fruit of gentleness and peace and grace and we really need to know what real forgiveness is all about and real restoration because I'm not going to stand in front of you and confess everything wrong in my life if I think you're going to burn me at the stake I mean forgive me but I'm not going to even metaphorically and all the time I don't trust you to treat me with grace and forgiveness and um, and honour that that courage that I've shown in confessing to you. I'm not going to confess, am I? I'm going to hide it. And I'm going to keep up this Jungian persona, this mask that shows you what I'm really not. Which goes on some of the time. So what, what James is writing here, this little passage, sounds simple enough. But the implications are... Profound in the way that we are as people. Let's have a quick, quick scoot through it. And I won't take too long to do this. The first bit of it says, Is anyone of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Are any, any of you sick? Call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. The biblical church family believes that the physical world and the spiritual world are inextricably linked. And that the world of prayer is a natural way to live. And committing everyday events to God and trusting him to intervene in them as he sees fit, but also in response to what we ask for, is a natural way to be so that the church family of God in the Bible is an expectant family it's one that expects things to happen and we're not always in that mode of thinking are we uh, so he quotes Elijah which made me laugh because he prayed for the rain to stop and and that little map that we you know that little film that we just saw was an example of, of that and um, it was. It really was very timely. It was every bit as Chris, bad as Chris described it, and um, we we could have. I guess we could have lost the whole thing. I mean, it, it could easily have been called off, couldn't it? If they'd had another deluge, but hundreds of people were praying and praying and praying because they didn't want that to happen. And the clouds parted. It really was quite amazing. In James, we see the family of God praying together expecting things to happen and making that um, everyday expectation, that was the natural way to be and these of course um, were not made up people that James is uh, writing to they're real people, so James knows that not every prayer gets a yes answer, he must do but he's still saying to them, pray, pray, pray and the sick will be raised And the sinner will be forgiven. He's willing to say, that is your frame of reference. That's your standard assumption. That people will be healed and the sinner will be forgiven. Just do it. That is the way that we are as God's people. Now, Then he does something interesting, which comes back to this area of vulnerability and confession that I was talking about. He says, um, he does make some kind of implicit link... Between healing and a healthy attitude to sin and confession, it's not. He doesn't really pad it out. He doesn't explain it. But in the in the in the way, in the syntax, and the way you read it, there's a connection there in the text. He says, "If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed." The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, without laboring the point too much that is about a prayer for healing in the context of confession of being accountable I'm not talking about going into a little box and speaking to a priest although we do have a box over here and I am a priest but we don't really want to do that but it's about accountability and I think what it amounts to is taking the issue of sin and shortcoming and undesirability In our lives, seriously, and as I recall, Francis Chan talked about that quite a lot. About holy living, holy living being healthy living, a key to un-releasing God's power um, and and favour in our lives. Keeping short accounts with God and short accounts with each other. I know um, that if I am in good relationship with people. And, I, and I'm on an okay wavelength with God. Then the channel of communication between me and him is much better. And I see answers to prayer and I pray more. Maybe that's the reason. But there is this link between short accounts with others, short accounts with God and the flow of God's power. That is not the same... ...as saying we earn God's favour. It's simply a reflection on how the relationship between anybody works. Where there is unforgiven and unconfessed wrongdoing... ...there's a communication blockage. And James says... ...get that right and you will see God move. You will see God move. And I wouldn't wish to unpack that anymore. I I don't really need to know why that's true... I don't need um, six chapters of systematic theology to explain to me that confessing my sins, appropriating God's forgiveness for me, and clearing the air with Chris or with Guy or, or with, with uh, Robin or whoever it is will make the whole God, me, other people thing work well. It's healthy. It's just the way communication, the way relationships work. It's not some magic answer to healing. It just unleashes the power of prayer. My prayer life is fueled by my knowledge of forgiveness and impaired by guilt. If I'm guilty, I don't pray. Is that true of anybody else? You kind of, you know, if I've messed up the garden when I was a kid, I didn't talk to my mum and dad because it would come up in the conversation. And if I've smashed a window, I wouldn't go and talk to them. Why would you? until I confessed and it was obvious and then things would be okay again and then finally um, James talks about accountability the idea that when we have the tendency to wander off on, on, on errands of fancy in our lives go off on half truths and no truth that the church has a responsibility to bring us back to be in such intimate relationship with us that we can keep each other in truth this is a bit harder because we don't want a church I think where we say you have to believe this in order to belong this is quite tricky we want a church with no walls we often say that don't we where people can come and if they need to believe in Jesus Christ born, uh, raised again ascended pre existent with the Father and coming again and pre millennial you know all that kind of stuff. If you need to have that before you get through the door, then we're not we're not a community of evangelism, are we? We're not a community of welcome. I think what James is talking about here is Christians who have decided to turn from the path. You've entered into that community of relationship and said to others, I am accountable to you. We are each other's, we belong to each other. Look after me. You see me wandering away. Please bring me back. And the same safeguards apply. We need to know love and grace and tolerance and patience. (coughs) But we also need to be vulnerable, give permission and listen and be part of the body, be part of the collective and not just an individual who's happening to buy into something at the moment who might buy out at any time whenever the wind takes us we are part of a family two final things um, a theologian called C.H. Dodd who's a- actually writing about um, not about um, James so much but about one John making a similar point talking about loving people and um, C.H. Dodd says it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved. But loving everybody in general may actually be an excuse for loving no one in particular. I get the sense that James really meant us to, in the words of the song, find somebody to love. To really make it real and extend it to specific individuals and say, you know, I'm going I'm to get involved in that person's life I'm going to be a blessing to them. And in the church of a thousand people, you probably can't do that to 999 other people. But you will find yourself in collective groups where who, who, who that person is, or all those people are, it will become obvious. To love specific people and make yourself a blessing to them. Don't just take on the idea, the concept of love and throw it out there on the wind like some philosopher. And structures obviously help. So, so get involved in small groups and and areas where you can get involved intimately with others and show your love for them. And receive it from them as well. Being able to receive people's blessing into your life is equally important you know there are some people who love to give, give, give and give when you try and give back they won't have it because that that vulnerability is not there in their life they won't accept it the second final point is this this is the family of the church James is talking about and it's the family of the church in 1 John it's the church of Christians in Corinthians it's the church of Christians in Peter we are called to love the church. And because this this is James and it's real and it's gritty and it's 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 not, not idealistic, you're called to love the church as it is, not as you would really love it to be. It's great to try and make it as you'd like it to be, just as you would bring up a child or nurture a relationship it is not given to us to write off the bride of Christ. You know, that is the ultimate pride, to think, I write off the church, the church is lost, I've got it, I'm right. That's probably one of the errors that James is talking about. A guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who... um, um, ministered in Germany, he was a Lutheran, wasn't he? I think a Lutheran priest, and he died under the Nazis eventually. Said, so those who dream their dream of a Christian community more than the, sorry, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the community itself end up destroying that community even though their intentions were honest, earnest, and sacrificial. And he said, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream dreams of idealized community demand that God fulfills it and others. And they enter the community of Christians with their demands, their law, and judge one another and even God. I think that would be a great thing to get rid of. Or just to leave at the foot of the cross. Our judgmental criticism of the church and set about building your ideal version of it in your small corner by loving the specific people that you've been called to love. And then see how people get called to you and get attracted to what you're doing. (coughs) Christian community, he says, is not an ideal which we have to realize, but a reality created by God in Christ, in which we are allowed to participate, and I found that quite helpful. You know, this is something that we are privileged to be part of, and asked to give our best to—not our judgment of. That's really all I want to say about James. I—I I wonder if we can just want to stand together, and um, let's have a let's have a time of worship. We have the.